Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast, episode 2.9, Off the Step and Into the City. It's the 90s AD. In Europe, the Roman Empire is pushing into Wales and the north of England. In the Middle East, the last books of the New Testament are being put down. And just outside India, in Bactria, a new invader is getting ready to invade. The story of this episode, though, starts much earlier than that, and in China. Now, I know this is the History of India podcast series, And if I'm being upfront with you, almost none of the events of this episode are going to incur in India itself. But I promise you this, all the events of today's episode are going to matter a great deal for the people of India, and especially for the people of Pataliputra. Anyway, back in China in the midst of time, the hero of our story is a tribe of people called the Yu Qi. The Yuqi were nomads, Uh, they were cattle breeders. They dominated Mongolia and northern China right up to the Yellow River. And that means that the Yuqi lands were huge. The Yuqi were powerful, maybe the most powerful group on the steppe. The steppe's the vast tract of grassland that goes all the way from the north of China across the top of the Himalayas to the west of Central Asia. The Yuqi were so large and so powerful that they were the main dealers in that beautiful greenstone jade, so valuable in that part of the world. In fact, the Chinese name of the time for jade was named after the Yu Qi. Even today, in some regions, the name for jade is, is derived from Yu Qi. So the Yu Qi were very economically powerful. They were also very politically powerful, militarily powerful. They had around 400,000 people in the Yuqi, and that meant that they had over 100,000 warriors, most of them archers, each of them on horseback. And using this great army, they bullied the surrounding tribes. Now, one of these tribes near the Yuqi would later go on to be called the Huns, and they would become the arch enemy of the Yuqi. But for now, they were just a splintered collection of tribes to the east of Yuqi territory. Back in the day, the Yuqi, with their huge army and their enormous economic might, held the Huns in contempt. The Yuqi were the major power, the big boys on the block. The Huns were just some guys who happened to be sitting on the land that probably belongs to the Yuqi in reality. So the Yuqi were pushing for more land from the Huns. And they decided to take the Hunnic prince captive, the firstborn son of the king of the Huns. He was probably a hostage in the UT territories in the nicer sense of hostage, right? Not being tied up in a basement somewhere, more being educated and looked after and cared for. But he was still a hostage. If his father, if the Huns were to ever attack the Yuqi, the Yuqi would be coming for his life. It was just the standard ancient insurance policy, no optional extras. Well, the Huns did attack. And so, men came to kill the hostage prince, just as planned. But by some ingenious method, we don't know how, he managed to give his killers the slip. Presumably he ran into the wilds, cursing the Yu Chi for trying to kill him, and cursing his dad for making them try to kill him too. That was a lucky day for the prince, but it was an unlucky day for the Yu Chi. 
The prince's name was Mao Tun, and he was the greatest of the Huns until, well, until Attila the Hun. By the way, I said that this was the tribe who later became called the Huns with Attila the Hun, um, and that's because some historians think they're related to those Huns, the Huns of the late ancient era who'd throw their weight around in Europe. It's not exactly clear that the Huns of our story really are related to the Huns of Attila. Historians occasionally get carried away trying to identify these ancient steppe tribes with more famous groups that came off the steppe in later times. They even used to do that to the Yu Chi. Right? Historians used to think the Yu Chi were the ancestors of the Goths. The Goths, not the white makeup guys who listened to death metal. The, the Goths who sacked Rome in the late ancient period. Actually, the only evidence for the Yuchi being the Goths is that they have a similar sounding name. Goths were called Masagatai. Yep, you heard me right. Historians thought the Yuchi were the Goths because Yuchi sounds a bit like Masagatai. I don't get it either. Anyway, back to the ancient Huns and the escaped prince Mautun. Now, Mautun became ruler of the Huns and he looked south to what was going on down in China. China was at the time being unified into a single powerful state. And Mao Tun thought, that's exactly what we need. So he took the disparate Hunnic tribes and persuaded them somehow to form into one big tribe. More than a million people in all and many warriors amongst them. A huge great weapon in his hand. And Mao Tun was going to use this huge great weapon to get revenge on the men who tried to kill him to get revenge on the Yu Chi. He sent his best general to exterminate the Yu Chi, and the general reported back that he succeeded. Well, Mao Tun gleefully wrote all about it in a letter to the Chinese emperor. He wrote that the, the Yu Chi had been wiped out, and all the tribes that the Yu Chi used to rule over were now ruled over by the Huns. What Mao Tun wrote to the emperor was only half true. It was true that the Yu Chi had been crushed by the Hunnic forces and that all the tribes they had ruled over were now under the Huns. But the Yu Chi hadn't been wiped out. A huge number had fled and hidden themselves. And over the next decades, the Yu Chi would come out of their hiding places and they would set about trying to regain what they once had. For years, the Yu Chi had been the big bully boy on the steppe and they still wanted to act like that. Now, they had been defeated and a lot of them had been killed, so they couldn't take on the Huns yet. So instead, they bullied the smaller tribes and threw them off the land and took it for themselves. The Yu Chi were announcing, we're back in town. This was a bad idea. Because the bullied tribes, the smaller tribes the Yu Chi bullied, did the sensible thing. And they ran squealing to the new big bully on the block, the Huns a bully who already had a grudge against the Yu Chi. So the Huns, hearing about all these tribes who were being mistreated, for the second time in two generations decided that they were going to have to wipe out the Yu Chi completely. The battle between the Yu Chi and the Huns was probably a foregone conclusion. The Huns were sorted and were more powerful. The Yu Chi were defeated utterly. The Yu Chi king was killed and the Huns took his skull and used it as a drinking cup. Well, 
After two thrashings and two generations, the Yu Chi finally realised they were beaten. The dead king's widow and the dead king's son led the Yu Chi, fleeing west, away from the Huns, away from the lands of their ancestors, filled with this bitter rage against the Huns who had defeated them and killed their king, longing, waiting for a chance to get those upstarts down a notch. The Yu Chi, though, were not going to have much luck. After they moved west, they took land off another tribe. It wasn't actually a very small tribe this time. It was the number three tribe on the steppe, the Wu Sun. Name doesn't really matter. The Wu Sun were smaller than the Huns and the Yu Chi, but they were still sizable, still powerful. So the Yu Chi weren't going to take any chances this time. They made sure to kill the king and any adult relative so that there was no one to inherit the throne and take revenge. They weren't taking hostages this time. They left their enemy leaderless and started to settle down in their new home. However, the Yu Chi had left the infant son of the dead king alive. And the infant son was taken in by their archenemies, the Huns, and raised by them. And when he was old enough, he gathered the tattered remnants of his people and formed them again. A separate tribe, but still ruled by the Huns. Another prince bent on revenge against the Yu Chi. And soon enough, he got his revenge. Asking permission for the, from the Huns, he took his army out to the lands of his father, where the Yu Chi still were, and he beat them utterly. Not for the first time, the Yu Chi packed up their bags and fled again. Some of them fled to Tibet, towards the south. Those are called the Little Yu Chi, we don't need to worry about them anymore. Most of them fled further west, the Greater Yu Chi, trying to carve out a space for themselves in Shaka territory. It's fair to say from these stories that the Yu Chi and the Huns didn't get on. In fact, they were sworn enemies. Twice the Huns had sent the Yu Chi running from their homes. The hatred must have run deep. But they weren't the only people who hated the Huns. The Huns made lots of enemies. Another people who hated the Huns were the Han dynasty in China. The Huns were constantly pushing and invading on the north border of the Han dynasty, and they weren't pleased with that at all. So, one day, the Han dynasty decided that, well, the enemy of an enemy is a friend, so they sent an emissary out to go and find the Yu Chi and organise a joint assault on their Hunnic enemy. Now, the last the Han Chinese had heard, the Yu Chi were floating around somewhere to the north of the Huns, and that, of course, meant that any emissary to get to the Yu Chi had to go through Hunnic territory. The emissary was going to have to sneak past the Huns whilst laden down with letters and plans detailing how to destroy the Huns. Not an easy task. But the emissary gathered a small crew of a hundred people, including a Hun had been captured to guide them through Hunnic territory, and together they tried to sneak across the Huns' territory. Well, sneaking with a hundred people was not easy. And with crushing inevitability, the Huns found them, attacked them, and captured them. The emissary himself was held hostage by the Huns for ten whole years. Actually, it was the nicer sort of being held hostage, not the stuck-in-the-basement sort again, but, uh, you know, he actually got married and had a kid whilst he was a hostage. But the emissary never forgot his mission, and one day, after ten long years of captivity, the Huns got lazy, 
and the emissaries saw his opportunity. He made a run for it, away from the Huns. He even managed to take his wife and his son with him, out of Hunnic territory, and together they tracked the Yu Chi, asking people they passed if they'd heard of the tribe, following them through the steppe, along the route which was to become the Silk Road, busy with merchants and nomads. The little family crossed all the way across the tip, top of the Himalayas until at last, more than ten years late, the emissary finally found the Yu Chi. When he found them, they were still living a nomadic life of sorts, but far to the west of their original homelands, almost at the very end of the great rolling grasslands of the steppe, in the lands to the north of the great river Ox, or Oxus, which is roughly modern-day Uzbekistan. The Chinese emissary turned up on the Yu Chi doorstep. He had come thousands of miles and taken more than a decade of his life but as he started to deliver his message and ask if the Yu Chi wanted to organise a joint assault on the Huns, he realised it had all been a waste. The Yu Chi had moved so far away that they'd forgotten about their old enemy, the Huns. They just didn't care about that anymore. It was just thousands of miles away. And besides, the Yu Chi were back to their old bully boy ways over here in the West. They had a new place to dominate, new towns and cities to bully over on the other side of the river in Bactria. The Chinese emissary stayed with them a few years just to make it worth the trip, and then he went back to China. And with even more crushing inevitability, as he tried to get through Hunnic territory on the way back home, the emissary, his wife and his child got captured again. This time, they managed to get away after only a year in captivity so I suppose he was getting better at this being a hostage business. Practice, I suppose, makes perfect. For centuries, the Yu Chi had floated across the steppe, living as nomads on the grasslands. But one day, they decided that the time had come for them, as a people, to settle down. And so, naturally enough, they decided to cross the river and conquer Bactria. And when they crossed the river, they found a Bactria that was ripe for the conquest. Now, once upon a time, Bactria had been a very easy land to defend, very difficult to invade. It was called, remember, the land of a thousand walled cities. And in some sense or other, it still was the land of a thousand walled cities when the Yu Chi came off the steppe. But everything was in turmoil. In the years before the Yu Chi came, the Shakas had come and they'd passed through Bactria. Actually, the Shakas who had come had been fleeing the Yu Chi. And when the Shakas had passed through Bactria, they had destroyed the Greek kingdoms there, chasing them into India. The Shakas hadn't left Bactria as a wasteland. It was still quite full of people. Perhaps 100,000 warriors were based in Bactria. And the fortified cities were still there. The Shakas hadn't destroyed the cities. The problem was that there was no unifying power. The Shakas had destroyed the unity, the political unity of Bactria. There were a small smattering of Indo-Greek kings, ruling little more than a city or a town each, and maybe a few Shakas around too. Chinese texts sum up the state of Bactria at the time of the Yuchi invasion. The people of Bactria were good at trading and negotiating in the streets on the market. But each city or town had its own leader, and the people were weak and they feared war. When the Yu Chi came off the steps down into Bactria, the isolated rulers 
offered almost no resistance. What could they do ruling just a town against the horde of the Yuchi? The Bactrian settlements were each quickly subdued and taken into the Yuchi lands. The Yuchi had finally arrived in their own cities, and there they set up their home for good. They started to do what earlier historians called becoming civilised. On the steppe, the Yuchi hadn't written much down, they hadn't had much need to. They needed to travel light, I suppose. But once they settled down in Bactria, they started to write. They spoke and they thought in Arya, i.e. Iranian, the Iranian language. But they used the Greek script, which they just borrowed from the Bactrians they had conquered. Of course, being the Yuchi, they couldn't just sit quietly in their new homes. They still wanted to throw their weight around. And soon they were back at their tricks. Now the great war in that part of the world was between the Parthians and the Seleucids. The Parthians were the guys who invaded India, uh, and there they were called the Pallavas, the great eastern empire constantly harassing Romans and Greeks. The Seleucids were the Greek empire of the east, the leftovers of Alexander the Great's conquest there. Now, one day the Parthian king decided that he wanted some mercenaries to help defeat the Seleucids. So he hired the Yuchi. Anything for a good fight, thought the Yuchi. So the Yuchi picked up their bows and arrows, jumped on their horses and set off for battle. Now, perhaps the Yuchi, being the new kids, didn't really know where they were going. But in any case, they got lost. And they were late. When they turned up, the battle was over and there was no warring to do. The Parthian king, understandably from his point of view, didn't want to pay the Yuchi their salary. After all, they had turned up for late for work, so late they hadn't actually managed to do any work at all. But the Yuchi weren't best pleased. From their perspective, they had just ridden a long way to this battle, and the Parthian king had better make it worth their while. In the charming words of a Roman historian, the Yuchi were disappointed of their expected remuneration. They demanded that the Parthian king at least pay them something, but the Parthian king just laughed in their face. That was a bit much. The Yuchi were not going to have this, so they left the presence of the Parthian king and quickly set about destroying and looting his kingdom. The Parthian king no doubt realising he'd made a huge mistake, got together an army as quick as he could. He included in it a large number of captives, Greek soldiers, from the battle he'd just won. He whipped them into line in his armies and then got his whole army to march against the Yuchi mercenaries who were wrecking havoc in his kingdom. And soon the Parthian and Yuchi army met in battle. But the Parthian king had already made his second mistake and it was going to be his last. The Greek captives in his army were bitter about being captured and about being whipped into line in this strange army. And as soon as they saw that the Yuchi had a chance of winning the battle, they switched sides. They turned around to face their captors. And together, the Yuchi and the captured Greeks annihilated the Parthian army. The Parthian king was killed and the Yuchi went back home, honour restored. 100 years after the Yuchi had come off the steppe and into Bactria, they finally were unified. You see, back when they were nomads, the Yuchi had always comp been composed of five separate tribes. And when they first took Bactria and settled down, 
they naturally divided up things the same way, carving up Battery into five separate princedoms. The man to unify them was called Cadula Cadphysis. He was the prince of one of the tribes, and that tribe was called the Kushans or the Kushanas. And Cadula Cadphysis defeated the other princes and made himself king of the Uchi. And from that time on, the Indian sources just called the Uchi by the name of his princedom, the Kushans. Kajula Kudfaisis was an energetic man. Pretty much as soon as he'd united the tribes under his cushions, he set about founding an empire for them. At his disposal, he now had a sizable army. The army was uh, almost entirely cavalry, and it was equipped with the very latest in technology, the toe loop. The toe loop's exactly what it sounds like. It's a loop of leather or cloth where your toes are on a horse. And a horseman would rest their foot there, and it made a huge difference, right? Because you had somewhere to rest your feet, you had the leverage to swing your sword, and you had a more stable platform to aim your bow. What the cushions had invented was a sort of early stirrup. So Kajuluk Kudfysis took his state-of-the-art army and set about forging an empire. His first target was Kabul. Up until now, Kabul had been under the control of a king we've met, the Pallava king. That was the king who hired St. Thomas as an architect and then imprisoned him when he found out he wasn't a good architect. That was the king who had adventurers from Greece in his court. The Pallava court would have been an interesting place to be. And in fact, Kajula Kudfaisis might have known all about it because in his youth he'd probably been based at the court of this king, probably as a hostage. Well, now, Kajula Kudfaisis was back with his newly unified cushion force behind him. But Kajulakadphysis was both energetic and cunning. He knew when to take things slowly. The Pallavas didn't have a firm hold of the area, and one of the local Indo-Greek kings was trying to take it off their hands, so Kajulakadphysis pretended to support this Indo-Greek king, pretended to be his underling, and together the Indo-Greeks and the Kushans managed to force the old guys out of Kabul and back into India. But once the conquest had been completed, Kajula Kudfaisis, little by little, took power from his ally, until he was the sole ruler of Kabul. The coins tell the story eloquently. The early coins just show the Indo-Greek king. And then, a bit later, the coins start to have the image of Kajula Kudfaisis, but in a discreet place, on the reverse of the coin, and smaller, right? not so large and important as the image of the Greek king. As time goes on, the Indo-Greek king starts to disappear from the coins entirely, until only Kajula Kudfaisis remained. The coins and the land they were minted in now belonged to Kajula Kudfaisis. But Kajula wasn't finished yet. He pushed on further into India, through the Khyber Pass. And there, he conquered the city at the gates of the pass, Peshawar. Back in that time, it was called Purushpara, meaning city of men. Purusha means man, para, pura means uh, 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 town, city. Purushpara, Peshawar, was become the great city of the Kushanas. From there, he conquered parts of Kashmir in the surrounding countryside. The Kushanas had found their home when they came to Bactria, and now, under Kajula, they had found their empire. 
And it's a mark of their importance that they had the beginnings of the alliance with other great powers, in particular Rome. Cajulic Advices is shown in his coins reclining on a Roman chair, just like the Roman emperors were. And the chair itself may have been a gift from Rome. And in fact, the newly formed Cushion Empire in Rome had a common enemy, so they had something to lie over, to get together over. Rome had been at war with the Parthians for as long as anyone cared to remember. It was some disagreement about who owned Armenia or something like that. The Romans had given the Parthians a really bloody nose a few decades back, forcing them to sign a humiliating treaty. But the Parthians were still there, causing trouble at the edge of the Roman Empire. And for his part, Cajulicadphysis had been at war with the Parthians too. Of course, the Parthians and the Cushions had a history. A hundred years before, the Parthians had been humiliated by the Uchi, and now they were back. Whilst the Parthians were distracted with Rome, Cajulicadphysis tried to expand his territory into Parthian territory. In the years after Cajulicadphysis, Rome and the Cushions managed to form something of an alliance together against their common enemy. They became allies of a sort. And you can kind of get a sense of this alliance, this loose cooperation from one story. Not a very huge story, but telling, I think, of the overall relationship. The story goes that there was a rebellion in Parthian lands. It was centred on a small kingdom in the very north of modern-day Iran, hard between the mountains and the sea, where Tehran is now. The province, by the way, was famous throughout the world for its tigers, so famous that it even gets a mention or two in William Shakespeare's plays. Anyway, the rebels of this tiger province went to Rome to try and get assistance in their fight against Parthia. They managed to get there somehow across Parthian lands and get an audience with the Roman emperor, and the Romans were determined to get them back home in one piece. The trouble was that the chances of them crossing the Parthian lands again in safety were pretty low. So how were they going to get home on the other side of the Parthian lands? Well, the Romans had an idea. They escorted them down to the sea and put them on a boat, and the boat took them to Cushion lands. And the Cushions looked after these guests sent by the Romans nicely and sent them on home. It's just a small exchange of favours between Rome and the Cushions, but it indicates a healthy, trusting relationship between the two great empires. And that in turn indicates something more. Cajula Cadphysis had taken the splintered tribes of the Cushions and turned them into players on the international stage. Now the great conquerors of history rarely live very long, but Cajula Cadphysis was the exception. He ruled for an astonishing 50 years. And by the time he died, he was a grand 80 years old. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week we get a chance to read something from the Chinese sources. I'm going to be reading something from uh, the later records of the Han Dynasty. It's about uh, Kajula Kadfaises and the Cushions, and it's going to give us a peek into the future into next episode, over into India. It goes like this. The main centre of the Cushion Kingdom is the town of Bactra, it's the old capital of Bactria. To the west, it borders Parthia, which is 49 days' march away. There are 100,000 households, 400,000 individuals, and more than 100,000 men able to bear arms. 
Interestingly, that's the same number as the number of warriors in Bactria before they conquered it. Anyway, formerly the Yuchi were defeated by the Huns, and then they moved to Daxia, Bactria, and divided up this kingdom between five princes. More than a hundred years later, the prince of the Kushans, named Kujula Kudphysis, attacked and exterminated the four other princes and set himself up as a king of a kingdom called Kushan. He invaded Parthia, and he took the Kabul region. He also defeated the whole of the kingdoms of Puta and Peshawar. Kajula Kudphysis was more than 80 years old when he died. The kingdom of Kabul is southwest of the Kushans. It is also a large kingdom, and their way of life is similar to that of northwest India. But they are weak and easy to subdue. They're excellent traders and they're very wealthy. They've not always been ruled by the same masters. Whenever one of these three kingdoms became powerful, Northwest India, Peshawar and Parthia, they took control of Kabul, uh, and when weakened, the kingdoms lost it. Kabul was never previously dependent on the Yuchi. It was a dependency of Parthia before that. It was only after the Yuchi defeated Parthia that they managed to take Kabul. And now we get our peak into India. The kingdom of Northwest India is also called Jwandu which is India. It is several thousand li southeast of the Kushans. Their way of life is similar to that of the Kushans, but the country is low, humid and hot. This kingdom is beside a great river. The people ride elephants into battle. They are weaker than the Yuchi. They practice the Buddhist way, not to kill or wage war. From the Kushan and the kingdom of Kabul and heading southwest, you reach the Western Sea. To the east, you reach the Kingdom of Bengal, which is part of India. India has several hundred other towns, and a chief is placed in each town. There are scores of other kingdoms in India. Each kingdom is his own king. Although the kingdoms differ slightly, they are all still called India. Now, they are all subject to the Yuchi, to the Kushans. The Kushans killed their kings and installed generals to govern them. The region produces elephants, rhinos, turtle shell, gold, silver, copper, iron, lead and tin. To the west, it communicates with the Roman Empire, and precious things from the Roman Empire can be found there, as well as fine cotton cloths, excellent wool carpets, perfumes of all sorts, sugar loaves, pepper, ginger and black salt. And now for something completely different. That was the theme tune to the fantastic TV show Vikram or Bital, which tells the story that we told in the episode last week of Vikram and the Vital. Thank you very much indeed to Raj for sending that in. Great stuff. Really love it. If you know a bit of Hindi, I encourage you to check the show out. It's a great example of ancient history and the ancient stories still being told today. But anyway, where were we? Oh yes. 
Thank you very much indeed for listening. It's been a slightly odd episode, not only because everything happened outside of India, but also because there are a bunch of names most people have never heard of floating around and a bunch of new sources and new way of doing history. But I hope it was fun. The podcasts over the next few weeks are going to be a little bit more irregular, perhaps. I'm going off to India to spend some time with family. I'm also getting to visit some archaeological sites down south in Madurai. I'm really excited to do that. I'm going to try and have a podcast out every Wednesday as usual, but it's just about possible I'll miss one or two and there'll be a two-week delay. Apologies in advance. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snail Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great week. Take care.